Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. I don't really have a sermon of my own today, more of a word of thanksgiving, a word of reflection, a word of encouragement to you to do some reading and to do some exploration of your own. Protestants generally don't venerate saints, not overtly, but maybe we should. Catholics have multiple saints for every day of the week, every day of the year. Take your choice. Anglicans and the Orthodox are eager and happy to join whatever feast day for whatever holy man or woman who is on the calendar next. Lutherans do celebrate Luther, as Presbyterians celebrate Calvin on Reformation Sunday at least. And any Methodist worth his or her salt will speak in hallowed tones of John and Charles Wesley. So maybe it's not completely true that we don't venerate saints, we just do it in our casual, non-conforming way that Protestants do most everything. Well, that said, I am remembering a saint today, and his name was Frederick Buechner. It looks like Buckner, but it is pronounced Buechner. He died Monday morning, peacefully at his Vermont home, surrounded by his loving family, 96 years young. Per his website and his biography, he was a, quote, writer Novelist, poet, preacher, and theologian, he was an ordained Presbyterian minister and the author of 39 published books. His work encompassed different genres and his career spanned more than six decades. He was a finalist for the 1981 Pulitzer Prize in Literature. His awards, his honorary degrees, his accolades are too long to catalog here. His importance to my own journey, encouragement to my own soul cannot be calculated. And his name will be mentioned for decades to come, along with C.S. Lewis, Oswald Chambers, A.W. Tozer, and other devotional writing heavyweights. Well, how would Beekner respond to being called a saint? He told us, I receive maybe three or four hundred letters a year from strangers who tell me that my books have one way or another saved their lives, in some cases literally. And I am deeply embarrassed by such letters. If they only knew that I am a person more often than not, just as lost in the woods as they are, just as full of darkness, in just as desperate need, I think to myself, if I only knew how to save my own life, They write to me as if I am a saint, and I wonder how I can make it clear to them how wrong they are. But what I am beginning to discover is that sometimes I do have it in me to be a saint to other people, and by saint I mean life giver. 
Sometimes, by the grace of God, I have it in me to be Christ to other people. We all have the life-giving, life-saving, and healing power to be saints, to be Christ, and maybe at rare moments, even to ourselves. I could stop there and pass the communion cup. Tim told me today that he liked his sermons like he liked his books, short and full of pictures. <laughs> what I just read is that Beekner was very comfortable at last being himself. Honest, humble, true to his calling, true to Jesus, true to his desire to be connected with others, true to the wonder and glory of living. And this is why I chose Jesus' words to his disciples about becoming as a child to remember Beekner with. His one unifying theme, His main message, is truly what Jesus has said to His disciples and ultimately what He says to all of us. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Approach life as an eager, inquisitive child. Children live their lives with what can only be described as a holy recklessness. They soak up every day. They can quickly forget their pain and their heartache and their grudges. They deal honestly and lovingly with the people in their life. They collapse into their beds at night exhausted, having wrung out of another day everything that they could from it. And they wake up in the morning, the slate wiped clean, and they're ready to start again. A child, whether they be seven or seventy, is that person who still has a trusting heart, who is still dependent upon heaven, who has not lost that God-given gift of curiosity. This is why another saint, Brendan Manning, said, Heaven will be filled with preschoolers. No adults allowed. Heaven is only for those who are still in diapers. And that's true in the sweet by and by, and it's true right now. And that is the essential message of Frederick Buechner. Pay attention to this one incredible, magical life that you have been given just as a child would. One of my favorite little antecedents of his goes something like this. He says, if I were to tell you that over there under that chair is a pot of gold, you would look at me and say, don't be ridiculous. A pot of gold. You're insane. And you would just simply write it off. But if you say to a child, over there under that chair is a pot of gold, the child will investigate. The child will seek. The child will go looking for something to discover. And after all, you will never find what you are looking for if at least you're not seeking it. And they might in fact find a pot of gold. Or they might find something even more magical than that. What is the difference between we rational adults and irrational children? 
A child has yet to develop the callousness that comes from living in this world. A child is not yet jaded. He or she has not been hardened by betrayal or harmed by their trusting little hearts. A child looks at a person, looks at a situation, and doesn't ask, how are they trying to rip me off? A child looks at a situation and asks, how can I have fun with this? What am I going to discover today? What am I going to get into today? And that is truly the difference between enjoying your life or merely existing in your life. That is the difference between living within the vastness of the kingdom of God or constructing a cramped, bitter little box that resembles a coffin. That is the difference between living with smiles and joy and hugs, your feet always planted on a welcome mat, or with crossed arms, furrowed brows, and implanted wrinkles from all that frowning, sitting in a vat of your own sour water. Do children still get afraid? Yes. Are children sometimes suspicious? Yes. Is it easy for a child to be overwhelmed, to cry, to be hurt? Yes, yes, yes. Can a child be spoiled and selfish? Yes, though usually that is more the fault of the adults in that child's life than the child. But a child hasn't learned, not yet, to surrender to cynicism. Back to Beekner, to be a child is to respond to life, to love, as totally and as unthinkably as to the sound of your own name if someone shouts it out suddenly. The face that a child wears is his own face. Not the faces that we have spent years arranging and rearranging. A child is one who accepts even the most extravagant gift, even love, not on the basis of believing that she deserves it, but simply because it has been given. And going further, page by page, chapter by chapter, day by day, year by year, your own story unfolds, your life's story. Things happen, people come, people go. Maybe it is all utterly meaningless. Maybe it is all unutterably meaningful. If you want to know which, pay attention. Pay attention to your life, what it means to be truly human in a world that half the time we are in love with and the other half of the time scares the hell out of us. Pay attention. As a summation of all that I've had to say as a writer, I would settle for that. For life is holy with meaning or life doesn't mean a damn thing. Beekner practiced this. Decades before the documentary Blackfish was published and so many and so much of the tragedy experienced by both humans and animals, he took his family to SeaWorld in Orlando. I'll read a little bit of what he said happened. It was a gorgeous day when we were there with bright Florida sunlight reflected in the shimmering water and a cloudless blue sky over our heads. The bleachers where we sat were packed. 
The way the show began was that at a given signal, they released into the tank five or six killer whales, as we call them, though it would be interesting to know what they call us. They went racing around and around in circles. With the dazzle of the sky and the sun, the beautiful young people on the platform, the soft southern air, and the crowds all around us watching the performance, it was as if the whole creation, men and women, beast and sun, water and earth and sky, and for all I know, God Himself, was caught up in one great jubilant dance of unimaginable beauty. And then right in the midst of it, I was astonished to find that my eyes were filled with tears. This world is full of darkness. But what I think we caught sight of in that tourist trap in Orlando, Florida, of all places, was that in the heart of darkness, there is joy. The world does bad things to us all. And we all do bad things to the world and to each other. And maybe most of all, we do bad things to ourselves. But in the dazzle of bright water, as those glittering whales hurled themselves into the sun, I believe what we saw was that joy is what we belong to. Because whatever else it means to say that God created us in His image, I think it means... That even when we cannot believe in Him, even when we feel most spiritually bankrupt and deserted by Him, His mark is deep within us. We have God's joy in our blood. Is that not beautiful? Let me rush to say that Beekner had every justification not to feel and write as he did. His early life was no magic carpet ride. He wasn't raised religious or Christian. He did not have a close community around him. His father took his own life during the Great Depression because of what he perceived as his failures. He and his brother were buffered place to place, never having a true house to call home. That brother died torn by the impacts of his father's suicide. And Beekner's own mother would never speak about, explain, or give Frederick any insight whatsoever about his father, who he was, why he did what he did. And even on her deathbed, as Beekner begged for just a word about his father, just some absolution, even in her death, his mother refused. And it created within him a kind of alienation. He was tormented at times by doubt, crippling doubts, practical doubts, existential doubts. He felt ashamed to have succeeded knowing his father had not. He feared that there was something of the illness his father carried within himself. He could not be in public life for extended periods and he had to completely withdraw. He didn't have the confidence that one of America's greatest writers should have had. Yet, he let all of this bleed through. He owned it all and he wrote about it brutally and honestly and he taught us that even the hurt and confused child, one that remains such even to 96 years of age, can remain a seeking, wondering, trusting child in spite of everything. Never cynical. Never bitter. Never jaded. Never bleak. Never hard-hearted. 
He persisted in simple faith, always hopeful, always Christian, always searching for meaning, always encouraging each of us to pay attention to our lives. Brian McLaren wrote the introduction to one of his last books. He said, quote, I have no desire to analyze what makes Beekner's writing and preaching so extraordinary. But neither do I want to account for Bob Dylan's raspy mystique, the peculiar beauty of a rainbow trout in a riffle, or a thunderstorm's magnetic terror. I simply want to enjoy them. So in Beekner's case, please spare me the burden of analysis and permit me the pleasure of observation. And with that, and without analysis, here are a few of Beekner's words that I carry in my heart, and I'd like to share them with you today. On the church, I do not believe that recovery groups such as Alcoholics Anonymous are perfect any more than anything human is perfect. But I believe that the church has enormous has an enormous amount to learn from them. I also believe that what goes on in those groups is far closer to what Christ meant His church to be and what it originally was than much of what goes on in most churches I know. These groups have few buildings or official leadership, little money. They have no rummage sales, no altar guilds, no neighborhood canvases. They have no choirs, no liturgy, no real estate. They have no creeds. They have no programs. This makes you wonder if the best thing that could happen to many a church might not be to have its building burned down and lose all its money. Then all that the people would have left would be God and each other, and that would be enough. On death and loss. There is nothing to worry about. Not even losing the ones you love most in the world because no one is ever really lost. Yes, you will live out your days as one who continues to be afraid of many things, but in the deepest, most final sense, there is nothing to fear. What's lost is nothing to what's found. And all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. On letting go. I probably could read this paragraph and pass the communion cup. This is going to hit us all. Are you ready? Stop trying to protect, to rescue, to judge, to manage the lives around you. Remember that the lives of others are not your business. They are their business. They are God's business. Even your own life is not your business. It is also God's business. Leave it to God. That is an astonishing thought. It can become a life-transforming thought. Unclench the fists of your spirit and take it easy. What deadens us most to God's presence within us, I think, is the inner dialogue that we are continuously engaged with ourselves, this endless chatter of human thought. I suspect that there is nothing more crucial to true spiritual comfort than being able from time to time to stop that chatter. Can I get an amen? On faith and doubt. Whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you are either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts 
are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. And if there was no room for doubt, there would be no room for me. On life, listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is in the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and the gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. Laugh with somebody till the tears run down your cheeks. Wake up to the first snow. Be in bed with somebody you love. Whether you thank God for such a moment or thank your lucky stars, it is a moment that is trying to open up your whole life. If you turn your back on such a moment and hurry along to business as usual, it may lose you the ball game. If you throw your arms around such a moment and hug it like crazy, it might save your soul. And on grace. We must be careful with our lives for Christ's sake. Because it would seem that they are the only lives we are going to have in this puzzling and perilous world. And so they are very precious and what we do with them matters enormously. So here is your life. You might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. And here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe I love you. This gift of grace can be yours if you'll reach out and take it. In his book, The Eyes of the Heart, Frederick Buechner writes about his brother's last days 30 years ago and his brother's death. His brother with Buechner as well, they both had the same kind of gallows humor. And his brother said to him, I have incurable cancer of virtually everything, and I don't intend to be around for more than two weeks if I can possibly help it. It's a heartbreakingly beautiful telling, and I can't read it to you today. I've tried at home several times, and I can't get through it by myself without crying, and there's no way I could do it publicly. But I will give you the last paragraph. As our benediction. My brother never went to church except once in a while to hear me. And he didn't want a funeral. He told me. Maybe cocktails and dinner for some of his old friends in the fall when everybody got back to the city. He said that sounded like a good idea. But he did ask me if I could write a prayer for him that he could use. And he had it there on the table beside him when he passed. Dear Lord, bring me through darkness into light. Bring me through pain into peace. Bring me through death into life. Be with me wherever I go and with everyone I love.